Thank you for joining this sermon podcast from Cornerstone Fellowship in Forest City, North Carolina. We hope that you are blessed and encouraged by today's message. Cornerstone exists to glorify God as we passionately pursue Him and make Him known through worship, discipleship, fellowship, and outreach. Here's today's message. I want to ask you today to turn in your Bibles to 2 Chronicles chapter 7, and we'll begin reading today in verse 11. And we'll read through verse 14. Now I want to say a few things before we actually read the text. And that has to do with the context of the most famous verse in all of this chapter. And that is verse 14 of chapter 7. It is a very popular verse, especially if it's near election time or we're at war or the economy is bad. And of course, our economy is not bad. It's great. I know that because they told me that it it was. But I can tell you, sometimes as pastors, we take unwarranted liberties with the Word by taking this verse and, and, and making it out to be God's message to America. If my people which are called by my name if they will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, I'll forgive their sins and I will hear their prayers and I will heal their land. And we say that because, you know, and I have preached it that way. I'm confessing to you. I preached it as, as if this was God's Word to crooked politicians and abortionists and, and, and just all of that kind of stuff that it's time for America to hear a word from God. But you'd have to imagine, if we go back to when this was stated, this passage is about a thousand years before the coming of Christ. And Solomon is is building the temple of God. He is about to go into it, and we'll look at that in a second. But just think about it. God never said anything about Canaanites or Moabites or Gagashites or Hivites or Hittites or any of those ites, he is preaching to Israelites. If my people. And so instead of us using this passage today to pray that God will just kind of jerk a knot into this old world around us, we need to make sure we read the address for this whole passage. God is talking to His own people. And, and I want to give you... a even more. I want you to, with us to all understand the context of what's going on. In the second book of Chronicles, it opens with the building of the temple of God. Now, they had a tabernacle. They broke it down, stacked everything, stored everything a particular way. It was very meticulous. It had rules for all of that. And then they would move it with them wherever they wanted to go. And God would meet with them there. Always remember the tabernacle, which was mobile, and the temple, which will be permanent uh, in a sense, (laughs) immovable in in a sense. Uh, It was the place where God met with humanity. It's a place where He met with His people. So it's a very special place, but... They're now about to build a temple. And it's in Jerusalem. 
David wanted to build it. God would not allow him to. He says, you've been a man of war. You've shed a lot of blood. But I will let your son Solomon build this temple. So in chapter 1, just hear me out here. Chapter 1, they start with worship. They're worshiping God. Chapter 2, they're having preparation for the temple. David, what a man of God. When God told him he couldn't build the temple, he didn't pout. He didn't just get discouraged. He didn't get angry with God. He started dragging things out of his house and his own bank account so that this temple could be furnished like no other building on earth. 38 tons of gold has been estimated to have been a part of the temple that Solomon built. It would be destroyed and then later it would be rebuilt, but never, ever would it ever be what it had been when Solomon first built it. In chapter 4, the temple is furnished. And in chapter 5, God enters His house. That's significant. They brought in the ark. They brought in all of the other furnishings, the table of showbread, the candelabra, and all of that They brought all of that in. And you would have thought, well, because the ark always represented the presence of God, that's when God came in. But you'd be wrong. God did not enter this place until chapter 5. And He entered because the priests had consecrated themselves. They set themselves aside from the rest of the world, asked for the forgiveness of their sins. They wanted to be holy and clean before God. And when they prayed that, and they became concentrated and separated from the world, it was then that God entered His house. And then in chapter 6, something really important happens. A lot of things, but the most important is Solomon prays. And I want to talk a little bit about what he prayed, and then we will move into chapter 7, read our text, which will be God's answer to him. But in verse 36, something so interesting in chapter 6 happens. In the midst of all the pomp and all of the things that were going on, you remember in, in this, these chapters we just read, God had asked Solomon, what would you like? What do you want more of than anything else? I'll give, I'll give it to you. And Solomon asked for wisdom. So being cursed with wisdom, so to speak, there were some things that Solomon knew. He knew that it's not going to matter that we got a new place, a new building, a fresh start, tons of excitement. I mean, you got to... Picture this, people bringing things out of their home. I want to carry this to the temple and I want it to be there. And and it didn't matter about expense. All of that was so exciting. But there was something that Solomon knew. He knew they would sin against God again. And in verse 36, Solomon prays to God. And he says, and when they sin against you, He says, for there is no man who does not sin. And getting a new place to worship is not going to stop them. It's not going to make them any more faithful. It won't make you any more faithful, God, because you are completely faithful and we're completely not most of the time. 
And Solomon was wise enough to know that that is not going to change. You know, man, I I'm, didn't even plan on stopping here. You know how I hate to chase rabbits. Ugh. But right in the middle of all of this, Solomon knows. He knows what they're going to do. He says, no man is, does, there is nobody that does not sin, God, and all of this newfangled stuff is not going to change anything about their hearts. If we could get that through our minds, we would quit, I think. I think God's people at least, we would stop thinking that another marriage is probably going to fix me. First five or six didn't, but I think one more will. Or a new car, you'd be amazed. You know, I, I, I know that may sound trivial, but there are people in this world that they're thinking, if I just lose 10 pounds, that's all I want. I remember when I was a kid, that 66 Super Sport that I bought, my very first car. I don't remember much about it. It's a 66 Super Sport SS396, 375, four-speed, four 410 rear end. Don't remember a lot about it. But I thought if I get that, that's all I need. And when the engine blew up, I thought if I could just get me a good motor, that's all I need. Wow. You know, if I had been saying I just need my head examined, that's all I need, I'd have been a lot closer. But when we think that some new surrounding is going to do it, some new thing, I read a new book, I got a new, and I can tell you, a new church, boy, that's real popular nowadays. We've got them everywhere. We were discussing in the men's meeting the other night about uh, how people can just go from one church to another, and, and it's just whatever. You just go shopping. And there was a time, if you were, are old enough to remember when we had church letters, and people would move their church letter to from one church to another. Back in the day, it meant the pastor of the church you left had to give you permission to go and join another church. So if you left a mess behind where you just left, you didn't just get to go and join another church and never look back. And boy, if that happened nowadays, I can't even imagine how all of that would turn out. Those days, I'm afraid, are gone. But he says, I know it's not going to change them, God. He says, and you are angry. When they sin and you are angry with them and deliver them to an enemy so that they take them away captive to a land far off or maybe even a land that is near. Some captivities are far away. And I don't want to just make it simplistic or just spiritualize it, but I thought about lands far away and lands that are near. Some people are still attending church, but I can tell you, they might not be captive, but something has them captivated. Boy, that new career, that new house they're trying to pay for, that whatever, I got a life, I got things I, I, I just got to do, I, I, and something, and maybe life is going really great. I can tell you that is the stage before captivity because some are near, but some others are far. You don't even see them here anymore. They got so caught up in things that they used to do and they had quit and they had promised they'd never go there again, but the pull and the temptation on them got the best of them and now they're gone. They're a captive in a far, far away land. 
Solomon knew all of this. He knew that this place is not going to be the cure-all. Not for these people. So he asked God, just him and God. He said, God, when they sin. I'm excited too. I know I'm paraphrasing, but I'm sure he was. The way he's praising God. He's going to build his house next. He'll spend 13 years building his palace. But I think it's significant is that he built God's house first. He's excited about all of this, but he says, Lord, what's going to happen? They're going to sin against. As a matter of fact, I don't think even Solomon could have imagined that about 371 years later, that Nebuchadnezzar is going to walk right through the front door of this building. And he's going to haul off everything in there that used to be holy. And his son will fill those cups and vases and bowls full of alcohol and have a party with a bunch of whores right there in the midst of Babylon. How could that possibly be? How? It's incredible. Well, God answers His prayer. Let's read. Verse 11 of Second Chronicles 7. Thus Solomon finished the house of the Lord and the king's palace and successfully completed all that he had planned on doing in the house of the Lord and in his palace. And then the Lord appeared to Solomon at night. And said to him, I have heard your prayer. And have chosen this place for myself as a house of sacrifice. And Solomon had asked him, he says, if they do sin and you shut up heaven and there's no rain and there's pestilence and all of these horrible things happen, God tells him, well, if I do shut up the heavens, I certainly can. It's my prerogative. So that there is no rain, or if I command the locusts to devour the land, or if I send pestilence among my people, and my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin. And will heal their land. Now that's the context of Second Chronicles seven fourteen. I don't think, unless I missed it, that he mentioned Joe Biden one time. He said, "It's my people. My people. They're the ones I want to make sure they under." So, let's take a look at the passage. Just that one verse. If my people... God's not waiting, folks, on the postmoderns to finally figure out there is a such thing as absolute truth or the belligerent atheist. He's not waiting on them to stop living in denial and in that foolishness of, of denying that there is a God. These militant deviants that we have in our 
world today who want to expose our children in elementary schools to all kinds of horrible, immoral deviations from God's design for sexuality, or even Hamas and other Islamic terrorists. He is not waiting on them to accept the justification that can only be found in Christ Jesus. That would be great. We pray every week that they will, but He is not addressing them. He is addressing us. Never mentions the other people who live in the land. So you and I can sit around and we can uh, uh, talk about how wicked this world is and we can let all of that be a distraction to how cold our own hearts have grown from Him from time to time. And our own pride and our own self-will and, and things in our lives that are all messed up. It's easy for us to focus on things outside, but God says if you really want revival, you're going to have to start right here in the church. There's no such thing as reviving America. America is lost. You don't revive dead people. You take people, though, that have been alive and strayed away from God, and His Spirit revives them. So we can actually be a light in this sin-darkened world. Oh, I know. I understand what we're saying when we say, boy, this, this country, it needs revival. This country needs God. And His church needs revival. We need to be revived. And that fits well with the next point. He said, if they first of all will humble themselves. That's what it's going to take. Comparing themselves to all the ites. It's not going to get it done. That arrogance of self-righteousness. I, I got to tell you, in, in my years of pastoring and being alive, uh, I can tell you, I've never known sin to stop at the door of the church. Oh, it'll come right on in here just like it goes anywhere else. Wherever you got people, I, I always think it's amazing to me when, when people think they have discovered a, a revelation. You would think, man, they, they've discovered a new planet when, when they're telling you they're hypocrites in the church. Like we're going to go, what? Of course there's hypocrites in the church. There are hypocrites everywhere you go. Church was just the only place you quit. There were hypocrites at work. You think everybody where you work, they're excited about being there every day and they just pouring their life into it and they'd work whether they got paid or not. Do you think you work around a group of people like that? Most of them sit around in the water room or break room or canteen or whatever and all they can talk about is how badly they hate that place, but they come back and take money from that place every week. Whoops, I'm going to tell you, they're hypocrites in the workplace. But you didn't quit there, did you? I bet they're hypocrites in that bar you go to. <laughs> really? There's some that left that bar late last night and crawled out of bed this morning with a headache that felt like they'd been hit with a hammer. And they're in church somewhere right now begging, begging them to quit shaking that tambourine. They're not fully dedicated to wasting their life away in that little hell hole. They're living two lives too. It didn't make you mad though, did it? I think we need to humble ourselves. I have to ask God, please, Lord, forgive me for 
all my lust for vindication or validation or or whatever. Sometimes I just feel like, man, alive, these people in this world are so bad. But that can be a real distraction from my own problems, and I, I don't need to let that happen. I need to humble myself. And then he says, pray. Are you kidding me? Just pray? Well, that sounds awful simple. It's, it, it, it didn't sound very spectacular, but remember this. Prayer, first of all, it signifies a dependence upon God. It demonstrates that we are depending on Him. And you, and you just, just think about this. What would happen in our churches if all the things we've been working so hard to try to fix, you've been trying to fix that husband, hadn't done real good, I'm guessing. You've been trying to fix that wife. You've been trying to fix that teenager. You've been trying to fix you. How's it going? You about there? Just any day now? You're going to land on solid ground? Are you about there, man? What if all those things we've been trying to do ourselves, what if the church came and got on its face before God and started depending on the supernatural power of the Holy Spirit to do all of those things that we've been trying to do on our own? That's how revival would start. That's how revival would start. He says, and seek my face. Seek my face. Uh, Paul Neem is a word for face. It comes from uh, the word Paul <laughs> That sounds like something from South Carolina. But Paul Neem is the word for face. It comes from Paul Nall, which means to turn. To turn. And when I say I want to seek God's face, I want God to turn His face, His attention toward whatever it is that I'm trying to do in my life. I need your blessing on this, God. Maybe you've already gotten accolades from all your friends and people just think you were whiz-bang and all of that and you got it all together. But have you sought the face of God? Now, a lot of times we seek the hand of God because we want God to help us with this and help us with that. But when we seek His face, we're saying, God, before I pick out a college to attend or decide who I'm going to marry or decide what my career is going to be, God, I want You to look upon this. I want Your attention, Your approval. I, I, I want Your validation or, or assessment of what I am doing in my life. I want Your presence here, God. I don't want to just go off and do something because I like it or I feel good about it or whatever. I want to do, God, whatever it is that You want me to do. Man. There was so many things in my life that I enjoyed doing. I was a lineman for the power company. I really enjoyed that. It's exciting, man. I, I was, I, I'm scared of a lot of things, but I'm not afraid of heights. So, boy, it just worked out great for me. And I got so much attention for it too. Yeah, man. I was. I thought it the other day. I used to climb 80 foot poles when we did ball fields, and I don't mean the kind that has the fancy little steps on them. 
No, no, no. I mean the kind where you wore the steps on your shoes, your, your boots. Yeah, them little hooks. Oh, man. And I had it made because I was the only one that would climb them. We did some railroad crossings that were so high, I don't even know how many feet they were. They would take a Sky Ranger bucket up as high as it would go, and I'd climb out of it and climb the rest of the way. Oh, yeah. That's what I wanted to do. That's not what God wanted me to do. And it took me getting in so much trouble. I mean, it's not illegal to be a lineman. I didn't do very many illegal things. I just did whatever Mike wanted. And man, I was about to get myself in a really big mess. It'll be 44 years this coming Tuesday that I got on my knees one night and for the first time in my life, I finally cared about what God thought. Man. So, and, and let me just say this before we move. There's nothing magical about being in this place or whatever, but I can tell you this. If you would teach your children, and this is a great example right here, you, to have them here to hear the Word, to worship with the rest of God's people here and all of that, I can tell you that is so important because if somehow or another you could teach your kids at all the activities and schooling and education and all of that, while all of that is very important, if you could use the, the idea or teach them the idea that there is nothing more important than God's face and there's nothing more important than what God has for your life, nothing more important than pleasing Him. And I can tell you, you can say that's what you want, but if you wear the car out year-round, hauling them to every place but church and you know it's because they're so talented right your kids man I don't know why preacher Mike don't come to watch him play man oh geez I'm we're thinking Braves well if you knew how few people ever make a living playing sports compared to all of those who think they're going to. I can tell you, teach your kids. All of those things are fine, but teach your kids there's nothing in the world more important than their relationship with God. He says, if they will humble themselves, pray, seek my face, and turn from their wicked ways. That word turn here in the Hebrew is a word we could translate repent. It's the same word that's used in the Hebrew for repent. The word is shuv in the Hebrew. I think we have it on the screen. The word shuv is interesting. It is a word that does mean to turn or to change directions, but the Hebrew is always so, so very much deeper. Uh, I'm going to point with my finger the middle letter is a bait. The letter, second letter in the Hebrew alphabet is, a, is this letter bait, and it means house. If you look at this word on the far right, it is the word for sign. And the word sign literally means tooth. The letter means tooth as well as the word, and it means to crush. So, here is how the Hebrews came up with a word for repent. You have crush, destroy, and house. 
And the way they saw or explained repenting was whatever you had been a part of before you turned away, you destroy it. And you turn around. You turn around from that place. And they use house. So just think about this house as being this place where you backslid on God. That old habit that you used to go to. The Hebrew says when you repent, burn that place down. Don't rent it out till you decide you feel like going back again. Get it out of your life. Put it out of existence to really return, destroy that place in your life that keeps pulling you away, dragging you back down that same old road, destroying your relationship with God. Turn away from it by destroying that place. Take it out of existence altogether. Sometimes our problem is we never get very far away from those things that has absolutely wrecked our lives. Sometimes we have to destroy. Jesus talked about it. He said, hey, if your right hand offends, you cut it off. If your right eye offends, you pluck it out. All of that sounds radical. This sounds radical. But to actually, to actually get rid of those things in our life that continue to plague us, to really repent. We need to take some of those things and put them out of existence. Not just out of reach. Because I can tell you when temptation returns, your reach gets longer. And you begin to justify it. And you begin to think it's not, it's, it's not that bad. You begin to think, I'll, I'll, I'll stop at a point when you never have before. We have to repent. Now that's what God requires of us. Let's close with His response. He says, then I will hear from heaven. Let's just stop right there before we read what He says. I will hear from heaven. Sometimes, man, we need to hear from heaven. This old world has no answer for us. You know, I've discovered that one of the reasons that I often fight depression, and I know I've talked about that a lot lately, but hopefully it's going to help others to heal as well, I hope. But, man, I, I have very little confidence in this world. You, you just don't know. I about don't have any heroes in this world. I've seen so many failures. I've seen so many. I mean, I put my, I got pastor's books on my shelf that they left their wife. I, I, I got them signed by some of the biggest name preachers in the world that aren't even in the ministry anymore. I, and, and I know it could happen to me tomorrow. I, I got all of that. But I have so little confidence in this world. When I think about in Washington, D.C., we have the best and the brightest and the sharpest people on this planet. We're running the most powerful nation on earth. Should I go on? I think you got it, didn't you? Well, I have no confidence in this world. But one thing that it has helped me to do is have more confidence in God. Sometimes I don't want to hear a smart statement or some brilliant scientist from earth. Sometimes I need to hear from heaven. 
The last time we preached this verse, I think because of some of the old notes I have of it, it was a different sermon, but we used some of the Scripture. There was a family coming through here. Some of you will remember it. They were hit in the back with a pickup truck and the two boys in the back seat burned to death. The mother was trying to beat the fire out of their hair. They both burned to death right in front of her. Right up here on 221. Man, I'll tell you something. I'd need to hear from heaven on that one. I don't think that, oh, well, you know, God knows what he's doing and all that. I don't think all that would help me. I don't think some great book you found and recommend, I, I don't think any of that would help me. I think the only way I could keep breathing and my heart keep beating if I were in that situation, I'd have to have God speak to me. I'd have to have God speak to me. My goodness. And some of you right now, I know you're going through some hard things. Really. I, and you may not even know I know. I certainly don't ask to know, but I hear. Man, somebody you thought would love you till the day you died. You found out they didn't. That's so heartbreaking. I, I could not imagine it. Could not imagine it. And Please don't, don't distress over me just running it in the ground, but it brings me so much joy in life. Last night, Loretta and I sat on the couch like two teenagers, and we watched Steve Harvey on reruns of The Family Feud, and we just laughed and giggled like we were 14 years old. She's been the best wife I've had so far. I just love that. I love that. I couldn't imagine what some of you go through. And sometimes, you know, and I had to live this one as a pastor. I had a man one time that, boy, he was an alcoholic and had ruined his family. He came to the church one night where I was pastor, and he accepted Christ as his Savior. And I'll tell you how that we tested him right off the bat. His daughter, whose name sounded a lot like his, but a girl's name, and another young lady in the church sang all the time. So at the end of the service, I called his daughter's name and this other girl's name, and I said, would y'all come up and sing for us? He thought I called his name. He had only been saved like 15 minutes. He got up came right up there and opened the book and cut loose. And if you'll do that, that you, you, it, it takes salvation to do that. Oh, it was sweet. It was wonderful. But before long, his wife, who would come almost every Sunday, she quit. I did not understand that, but she helped me understand it. She says, when my husband came to church and he finally started doing all the things that he promised to do all alone, but hadn't. Y'all took on over him like he was the Messiah. She says, I'm the one that's lived through this all these years. I'm not saying she's right, but 
but I'm telling you, she helped me understand it. She said, all these years, I kept my promise. He didn't keep his, and all of a sudden, he's the star of the show. My goodness. Things in life hurt sometimes. He said, I will hear from heaven. I will forgive their sins. Man, that's such great news. We, we have people that are out in the world that don't know the Lord. They're repulsed at the idea of forgiveness. They're insulted. You could go up to them and say, look, I can tell by uh, the way you talk or what you're doing in your life right now or where you are, I can tell that you probably feel like, you know, God's judgment's going to be on you. And I want you to know God loves you and God died for your sins and He will forgive you. There are a lot of people nowadays that will bust you in the face for that. How dare you insult me like that? How dare you pass judgment on me like that? They've decided that they're okay. And the, the very word forgiveness, which should ring sweet in the ears of every human that's ever lived, they resent the idea that somebody might suggest they need it. He says, but for my people, I'll forgive their sin. And then he says, I will heal their land. Their land's where they lived. You know, just think about it. How would you like for God to heal where you live right now? Heal that home? Heal that constant fighting with teenagers or that marriage that's running off the rails or that's where you live. And sometimes that place can get awfully confusing and hard to manage. God says, I will heal their land. And of course, I know he's talking about the pestilence and the mildew he mentions and all of the horrible things that destroyed that place. But sometimes because of our sinfulness and our selfishness, we ruin the very place we call home where there should be peace and security, we ruined it. And it needs healing. It needs healing. Dr. David Allen, I'll close with this. He invited a church. I was watching him preach this week. He was at a church in Florida. He, David Allen, and we've heard him almost every year that we went to Jacksonville for the pastor's conference. But this was the prayer he led his church in that day, and I'd like for us to think about it today. Matter of fact, I think it'd be great if we prayed it. So listen to this. Lord, do anything in me that you need to do. In order that you can do everything through me that you want to do. That's a pretty simple prayer. But how powerful would that be? What if as a church we said, Lord, do anything in us, in me, God, that you need to do in order that you can do everything through me that you want to do, God. That's a great way to start. Let's bow our heads.
close our eyes. Just get still before God. Let's ask Him this morning for His face. Turn Your face toward us, God. We don't deserve it, Lord, but we need that level of intimacy with You right now. There may be some things, God, that we might not want You to see, but Lord, we're, we need Your face. Just tell Him that this morning. And right now, as I lead us, pray together with me, church. You don't have to pray out loud. Just pray it from your heart deep enough that God will hear it. Lord, do anything in me that you need to do. Do anything in me, Lord, that you need to do. Maybe up till now it has seemed innocent. Maybe up to now it's really not bothered you that badly. Maybe you've never even thought about it. But God needs to do something. Something in your life that He needs to change. Something in your heart, mind, home that He needs to fix or heal. In order that Pray with me now. You can do everything through me that you want to do, God. Whatever you want to do in me, God. Fix what is broken. Heal what is hurt. So you can do through me whatever you want to do. Lord, I come to You right now and I ask You for, for revival, God. I ask You for revival. Lord, I ask You to start with me. Lord, sometimes I'm so selfish, so self-centered. Sometimes, God, I'm arrogant. Sometimes, Lord, I'm an unintentional Pharisee. And I can be a pretty good one, Lord, to not be intentional about it. But sometimes, God, I, I get to making differences between my failures and other people's failures. I have reasons for mine. I have justifications for mine, God. I pray, Father, that You'd forgive me of that blindness and that foolishness, Lord. I pray, God, that You'll help us as Your people, as a church. Not just this local church, but let's start here, God. And I pray, Lord, that You would help Your people wherever they are in this world. Help us as Your church to no matter how bad the darkness gets, Lord, I pray that You'd help us to look at our own hearts and lives and allow You to use us. Lord, with a renewed sense of confidence and a, Lord, just a giving You control of our lives like never before. God, I pray that You'd help us 
that no matter how dark the world gets, that we would be a light in this world. God, please heal us from that foolish thinking that something new might fix us. Might fix the church. Might make us love You more. God, I pray You'd help us get over that. We quit looking to things We look to You. Please, God, help us. Bring revival, Lord. And start with me. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Thank you for joining us today. If you have any questions or would like to know more about Cornerstone, please visit our website at servantsway.com or email us at office at servantsway.com. Cornerstone Fellowship is located at 1186 Hudlow Road, Forest City, North Carolina. Please join us again next week.